Welcome to Midway. We're so thankful that you're here. We have guests today who've come together to worship God with us, and we're thankful for that. I want you to know that you're always welcome here at the Midway congregation. Speaking of God, when we think about God, there are a number of things that are revealed to us in the Word of God. God reveals Himself to us is one of the greatest things that we have the Bible for. But in the New Testament, when we're thinking about some of the things that we read, we will sometimes run across a passage, a scripture, that will help us to understand something about the very substance and nature of God Himself. And so this morning, there are four passages that I want us to think about very briefly as we begin our lesson that have to do with that substance and nature of God. And you'll see what we're discussing, what we're thinking about as we begin to look at these things. For example, in the book of John chapter 4, verse number 24, the Bible says simply, God is a spirit. God doesn't have flesh and bones. He doesn't appear in the same physical form that we appear. God is a spirit. That is his substance. That is his nature. There are other passages. Another one that I'd like to mention is found in the book of uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, at verse number 29. There, the writer of the book of Hebrews says simply, Our God is a consuming fire. So when we look at that, we have something, again, from the nature of God. It's taken from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 4, verse number 24 in the Old Testament, is the children of Israel have gathered around Mount Sinai, and God reveals himself there. But then there's 1 John, chapter 1, at verse number 5 where the Bible speaks about how that God is light. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. That's yet a third passage in the New Testament that helps us to understand something about the very substance and nature of God. Probably one of the most famous, though, one of the most well-known, is found in the book of 1 John chapter 4 at verse number 8. The passage simply says this, anyone who does not love does not know God. And you can finish the rest of that verse. The Bible there says, for God is love. That's a fourth, as we've looked at this morning, that's a fourth one of those statements in the New Testament that help us to understand something about the substance and the nature of God. You know, sometimes when people look at 1 John chapter 4, verse number 8, and they read that God is love, they somehow connect in their mind this notion that God is all love, that God is nothing but love. But as we've seen, at least from two of the other passages, we have to put those in there as well and understand love and how God is love by combining the things that also describe his substance and nature. Not one of those things describes God in its entirety when you take it alone. It's the combination of all of the things that we have revealed about God that go together to make up who he is. And so this morning, we could spend our entire lesson dealing with who God is, what God is, the substance and the nature of God, but that's not the purpose that we want to accomplish in this lesson this morning. 
What I do want to accomplish is to think about something that we often think about, something that is quite important to us, but also leads to a misunderstanding by many, and sometimes even with those who are members of the body of Christ, they misunderstand something about love. Anytime we define love because God Himself is love, we have to define love with the attributes, with the substance and the nature of the other things that go together to make up God. God is love. And we note from other passages of Scripture that, that the Bible speaks about how that love is from God. First John chapter 4, verse number 7. Literally, that love is born out of God. It comes out of Him. But unless we understand the entirety of God, or at least to the best of our human ability, understand the entirety of God, we won't understand the concept of love in this case so that we can practice it in the way that we truly need to practice it. And so we'll spend some time trying to develop that and come to understand it better as we go through our lesson this morning. When we begin to think about some of the characteristics of love, we'll just begin there. What is it that we find about love itself? Now, perhaps in the past we have run across some of these things, but we'll try to tie all of them together. One of the characteristics of love is that love is giving. We know that because we know something about the love that God has for us. We know something about love because we know something about God. In the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verse number 9, the Bible says, In this the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's the very next passage after the Bible says that God is love. Verse 8 is the one that says God is love. But we find God sending His Son, God giving us the gift of His Son. I've got a lesson that I've preached in years gone by that's called the John 3.16s, you know, two of them. One of them is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. And in that passage, John writes and says this, By this we know love. How is it that we know? How is it that we understand? How is it that we comprehend love? By this we know love that He laid down His life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You see, God sent, God sent His Son, God gave His Son, and the Son gave Himself. We understand something about love. Love is giving. And so that brings us back to that other John 3.16, the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We could spend a lot of time dealing with that this morning, but I think it should be an easy thing for us to understand that love is giving. But you know, when I come to understand that love is giving, it also tells me something else about love. Not just that love is giving, but whenever we give a gift, we choose to do that. And so love is an action that we choose to make happen. You see, God chose to send His Son. 
Christ chose to lay down His life for us. Both of them chose to give the gift that they gave to us in making it possible for us to have eternal life. And so when we think about love and what we do down here on this earth, if we want to understand it properly, we have to understand it that love is not really something that we fall into. It's an action, and it's an action that we can control. And one of the ways that we control is by we control whether or not we choose to give it or withhold it. And so love is an action we choose to make happen. But not only that, when we think about love, we also understand that another characteristic of love is that it's demonstrated. Love is demonstrated. Now, we've already hinted at that by looking at 1 John chapter 4 and 1 John chapter 3 and John chapter number 3. But what about Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 8 and going through verse number 11? That passage starts out like this. It said, but God shows his love for us. The word shows, God demonstrated, God put on to display his love for us. And how did he do that? Well, he uh, shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By the sending of his son to die for us, by the laying down of his life, God demonstrates his love for us. Notice as we think about how that it's demonstrated in this way, and he goes on in, uh, in verses 10 and 11, uh, talking about how that we're, while we were enemies, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son and so forth. We need to understand, again, it teaches us more about love. When we choose to demonstrate our love, we need to think about to whom God chose to demonstrate his love. And that while we were still sinners, God chose to demonstrate his love, to extend his love, to give his love for us. He demonstrated it by his son, as we've already stated. But not only that, we also understand in that demonstration that he demonstrated it while we were his enemies. We were sinners, but as sinners we became enemies of God. You see, love is possible even when the person that we're seeking to love is unlovable. Uh, are, are your enemies the most lovable people in the world? No, you wouldn't call them enemies if they were. The Bible says God demonstrated his love when we were as much unlike him as we possibly could be. We're sinners. Which made us separated from him, which made us his enemy. Love is possible even when the other person is unlovable. There are a lot of things in life that make people unlovable, aren't there? There are things such as inconsiderate behavior and brashness. You know, some people are just like sandpaper. They're so brash that they just rub you the wrong way and, and you just have a hard time, you know, loving that person. A person who's irresponsible gets on my nerves, if you will. Uh, you understand what I'm talking about. It's hard sometimes for us to love folks who are irresponsible in their life. 
Somebody who really gets under my skin is somebody who would abuse. Who would abuse a child or abuse a spouse or abuse the authority that they have with someone. You see, there are behaviors that make people unlovable. A person shouldn't continue in these behaviors just so that we'll love them more and we'll exercise more love like God does. We can't continue in those things. But there are things that we have as people, as God's people, have to learn to overcome. You know, as I think about demonstrating love and thinking about unloving people and all of those things that go hand in hand with that, I think about the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. We all know that story pretty well. Most of us at least do. We know about the man who's traveling, who's attacked by robbers. He's beaten and left for dead after he's been robbed. There's a, a priest that passes by and a Levite that passes by. The implication is this man is a Jew. And then there's this Samaritan that passes by and he helps him. That's where we get the term Good Samaritan. Here's this person who should have been his enemy, who should have passed him by as far away as he possibly could, but he's the one who winds up helping him. This good Samaritan passes some tests in the demonstration of his love. Let me just briefly mention three of them. This good Samaritan, he passed the prejudice test. Jews and Samaritans were, of course, at odds with one another. They did not intermingle. They did not intermix. You know the facts on that. But this man, this Samaritan, demonstrated his love to this man even though he could have been prejudiced against him. And by all practical purposes, relating in culture, he should have been prejudiced against him. But he passed the test by putting that aside. Another test that he passed was he passed the priorities test. Don't you think this man was busy? He was on his way. He evidently had business because we find him later on having to go on and attend to that business. And he left the the man who had been robbed and beaten in the hands of the innkeeper. And he says, you know, I'll come back and I'll, I'll, I'll take care of him again when I finished my business. But he had things to do. It wasn't just like he was out for a stroll one day and he ran, on, ran across this man. He passed the priorities test. But then number three, he passed the pocketbook test. He didn't just leave him in the hands of the, of the innkeeper and say, well, he's all yours now. I drug him over here. You take care of him. He paid the man and says, I'll give you more when I come back if it takes more than what I've given you. And so he passed the pocketbook test. Sometimes when we demonstrate our love, or I should say all of the time when we demonstrate our love, It's more than simply a word coming from our mouth. It's the actions that we put forth. It's the demonstration, but even though things might be hard for us or difficult or maybe we've never acted that way, that's what love is all about. And so this man uh, teaches us rather about the demonstration of love by the actions that he has toward this man that he found on the side of the road. But then again this morning, as we think about love, this is the one that we want to spend just a little bit of time on this morning. I want us to think about the fact that a third characteristic of love is that it is demanding. 
love itself is demanding. What do we mean by that? Well, I hope you were listening to Keith as he read the passage from the book of Hebrews chapter number 12 this morning in which he read about the children of God and how God disciplines his children. And I want you to think about what was read there. The Bible speaks about how that if we're not disciplined by God, then we're really not loved because God disciplines the one that he loves. And he chastises the son whom he receives, according to verse number 6 of Hebrews chapter number 12. Uh, The writer of the book of Hebrews makes it clear that if we really are not feeling that disciplining love of God, or if a person did not feel that, I should say it that way, if we did not feel the disciplining power of God, the only conclusion that we could come to logically would be this, God doesn't love us. But because we do feel that disciplining power of God pointing us in the right direction, of God encouraging us to do right, of God making it possible for us by the life that we live to to be with Him and enjoy all that He has, we can see the love of a father for His children. And so... As we look at God and His relationship to His people, we understand that there's that demanding part of love. God's love for us dictates that He correct us and put us in the right direction. You know, because love is so demanding, there's some things that we need to think about this morning. Because love is so demanding, love does not require approval. We need to get that point. God makes it clear, as we'll see in just a moment. But love does not require approval. God is love. That's His very nature. It's out of Him, but God has never approved sin. There are a number of verses that we could look at in God's Word, one of which is, brought out quite clearly in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There Solomon, the wise man, writes these words, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to Him, and then He lists seven sins. Now these are not the only sins that the Bible says that the Lord hates, but here's a good list, and it's brought out quite clearly for us to show us that God does not approve Sin. A lying tongue, haughty eyes, all of those kinds of things that he mentions. One who's always stirring up strife among brothers and sisters. God never liked that. You know, parents often disapprove of their children's actions, don't they? I suppose it may happen this way in some places, but if you've got a little one-year-old or 18-month-old that's sitting over by an electrical socket. And he's got him a, a, a some kind of a metal piece, a paper clip or something, and you know how little, little guys are like that. They want to see how they fit in. Uh, could you imagine a parent sitting over there on the couch watching, them, watching that little guy 
you know, and laugh. Hey, boy, that, go ahead, that looks good. Go ahead, see what happens, you know. Can you imagine a parent looking at a little child? There's probably some folks who do that. They need to be carried out behind the house for just a little while themselves and disciplined a little bit. But why would you as a parent tell the child, don't do that? Well, I don't want him to burn the house down. No, that's not really the problem, is it? Well, I don't want to have to clean up the mess. No, that's not really the problem. Why did you tell the little child don't put the paper clip in the light socket? Because you love the child. You don't want the child hurt, injured, killed. You love the child too much for that. Do you approve the action of the child? Well, certainly not. Well, if we wouldn't approve the action of a child who is sticking a paper clip in an electrical socket, why would we approve any of the other wrong actions that children sometimes do because they haven't learned better yet? And we would applaud them and laugh at them when the little child says a dirty word that he's heard from the television or from a friend. Why would we do that? Well, we wouldn't. Not as Christian parents. We wouldn't do it. We would lovingly correct them to let them know that we don't do those kinds of things. They, they just don't take place in our household. There are some actions that children do that we just don't, we don't approve of. Playing, in the, playing out in the busy highway. We don't approve of that because we know that it endangers our child. And just because we don't approve of it does not mean we don't love our child. Can you imagine a one-year-old arguing back, well, all the, other, all the other kids at daycare, they're sticking the paper clips in the, in the light sockets. Well, son, go ahead. Everybody, I, I understand your friends are. Go ahead. Sometimes folks are accused of being unloving because they disapprove of the evils in our society. And they're openly ridiculed because they take a stand against the evils that they see people in society using to destroy their souls. And yet we're called unloving. Folks, love doesn't require approval. But not only that, love doesn't require fellowship doesn't require us to, to have a part. Y'all remember all the way back at the first part of the Bible, don't you? The story of God creating. He created the earth and everything in it. He created Adam and Eve. And He placed them in a garden that He had uh, prepared for them. And He told them they could eat of everything. They were to tend and take care of the garden. They could eat of everything except this tree in the middle of the garden. The day that they eat of it, they'd surely die and... Lo and behold, you know the story. They did. 
What did God do? He drove them from His presence, from the garden, from the beautiful garden that He had created for them. The Bible says, Isaiah 59 verse 2, that sin separates between man and God, causes that great separation. We noticed last Sunday night, if you're here with us, that the word separation there literally means to sever completely. Breaks the fellowship that man has with God. God doesn't continue to fellowship with us in our sin. You know what God also said in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul writing, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate, to have fellowship with, not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral in the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since we, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's writing about the man who had uh, committed such great sin that he need, that fellowship needed to be broken between him. He was a Christian between him and the church. He said we can't totally get away from all of these sins, but we don't have to have fellowship with a brother or sister who continues in those sinful actions. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse number 4, even those who are outside of Christ, they look at us and they, they wonder why we don't have fellowship. 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 4 says, with respect to this, he had previously spoken about the sinful lifestyle of the Gentiles, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They malign you because of it. They make fun of you. They ridicule you because you don't have fellowship, or at least the Christians in the first century were not actively participating with them in all of the sinful actions that they were committing. Folks, it's not all right not even close to being all right, to fellowshipping with those who are in Christ or outside of Christ to the point that we're doing the things that they are doing. Doing the same sinful actions. Well, you're unloving if you don't come out here and participate in, in the lifestyle that I'm living. No, not. Because even God didn't fellowship with Adam and Eve. He drove them from His garden. The fellowship was broken. But then thirdly this morning, love doesn't require silence either. It doesn't require us to be silent. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, the very first one I memorized. John chapter 8 verse 32. King James Version says it this way, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Knowing the truth, the truth makes us free. Folks, Jesus told the truth, didn't he? Didn't Jesus tell the truth whenever Jesus spoke? What about when Jesus said in the book of Luke chapter 13 at verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Is that the truth? Sure it was. Six Times, if I counted correctly, in the book of Matthew, chapter number 23, 
we find this statement. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Do you know who was calling folks hypocrites? Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus wasn't doing that just to be mean. He wasn't telling folks that they needed to change their life. Just because he didn't like them, folks, it wouldn't be many days until he died for them. Laid down his life for them. But love caused him to have to speak up, not remain silent. Paul asked this question in the book of uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse number 6. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, if a lot of folks were to answer that question, they would answer it affirmatively, wouldn't they? If we tell some folks the truth, man, we might as well have hit them with a brick. Might as well have slapped them as hard as we could. Spit in their face. Because we don't many times want to hear the truth. Was Jesus an enemy of the people to whom he spoke the truth? No, I said it before and I'm going to say it again. It wasn't many days until he laid down his life on a cross in the most excruciating death that the Roman government could conjure up for those people and for everyone in this room this morning. Paul said, Have I become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? He would write in the book of of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way unto Him who is head under Christ. Folks, why is it so many today are called unloving when in love they plead with one whose life is marred by sin to change his or her life? I've heard literally brothers and sisters in Christ with whom elders and preachers and family members and others are pleading to change, I've heard them ask, how could you be so unloving toward me? How could you be against me so badly? Did you catch that? How could you be against me? I don't know if you made a connection or not, but we titled this lesson this morning on the first slide, For Me or Against Me. Been in the book, in the calendar, but we didn't put the subtitle, but we've been talking about it. The True Meaning of Love. Is God love? Yes. Well, what does Romans chapter 8 at verse 31 say? 
What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Is God for us? Yes. Has God sought to correct us when we're wrong? Absolutely. And if He didn't, He wouldn't love us. You know what the psalmist said back in Psalm 118 at verse number 6? Psalm 118, verse number 6, the psalmist declared, The Lord is on my side. And the psalmist was not always all that he should be. You see, David made a lot of mistakes, committed a lot of sins, and had to be corrected a lot of times. And yet, the Lord is on my side. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Little children, you're from God, and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. All of those point to the fact that God is for us. Just a quick glance at the world reveals an overwhelming majority of people on a path to destruction. It doesn't take long looking at the world to understand that they're not living. The majority of people in our world are not living according to what God has revealed in this Word. More and more, it seems, are coming to promote lifestyles that just cannot be harmonized with the Word of God. And as we look... And we think about those who are on the path to destruction. Sometimes those who are on that path include brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes those who are on that path include family members. And sometimes those who are on that path include good friends of ours. Yet through some twisted thinking, those who would seek to rescue others from their plunge into the ruins of of the pits of hell are considered to be against that person. I can't fathom it. I can't understand it. Good friend, if If you happen to be one who is on the wrong path and someone loves you enough to try to be, uh, try to help correct your life, then be thankful that someone loves you that much and wants the best for you. You know, it just seems like we've got it backwards somehow or other. We seem to think that those who would let us do our own thing that they're the ones who are on our side, but really those who let us do our own thing without seeking to correct us are the ones who don't love us. That's just the fact of the matter. If we think someone who is trying to help us is against us, our mind is messed up. We need to think about that very carefully because the one who lets me do wrong 
who lets me stick the paper clip into the electrical outlet, who lets me play out in the middle of a busy highway with all kinds of traffic coming. If we think they're the ones who love us, we're wrong, dead wrong. We need to make our life, our thinking, correct our thinking and get it right. You see, the person who lovingly seeks to correct us is not the one who's always against us. He's usually, she's usually the one who is the most for us. Are you for me or against me? If I'm on the wrong path, the only way I know that you're for me is that you want to help me get on the right one. Otherwise, let me go down the wrong road and destroy myself and there's no way that I can say you're for me. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We're not asking you to be a Christian this morning because we don't like you, we don't love you, we don't want you to you know, to, to, to think uh, badly of us. We want you to be a Christian because we want you to go to heaven. We want you to have what God has, to live where God lives. If you're here this morning and you've become a Christian by putting, him on, by putting Christ on in baptism after having believed in Him and repented of your sins and made the great confession... If you've done that and yet your life's not right with God, if someone approaches you and says, you know, here's something that you need to correct, hug their neck. Ask them to pray for you. Make correction in your life and say, I love you because you love me. And I know you're for me, not against me. Maybe you're here this morning and there's some uh, thing, some need that you have in your own life that's of a public nature. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation today, do it right now as we stand and sing.